Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cycling community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. Simon Burney has been part of mountain bike racing since day one. Unfortunately, an injury stopped his own cyclocross career too early. So he changed sides. He became a team manager and developed athletes into champions. Simon's passion and experience continuously grew the sport. With his openness for change, he keeps things fresh. Today, Simon is the UCI off-road manager, just coming back from the Tokyo Olympic Games. Simon is sharing first-hand insights about the challenges designing the best cross-country course ever, why it takes a team to win gold medals, and his personal excitement leaving for his 32nd Mountain Bike World Championships to Val di Sol, where Short Trek will have its championship premiere. We talk about how hard and competitive it is for the mountain bike sport to stay attractive and inside the Olympics. Why Beijing was the turning point for mountain bike cross country to change. And why it takes heroes like Steve Pete and Rob Warner to grow a sport. Enjoy the ride. Simon, good morning. Good morning, Dick. Hey, thank you for taking the time between Olympics and World Championships to talk to me. Yeah, you're welcome. Excited to hear what uh, you have to say from uh, from Tokyo. So, uh, first of all, I guess you pretty must be pretty stoked. Uh, gold for for the Britons with Tom Pitcock, huh? Yeah, that was good. That's been uh, yeah a long time coming. I think it was 1993 or 94 that I think the last Brit won a the last Brit man won a, a cross country World Cup. So uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a a bleak. <laughs> A bleak period for for the for the guys. Yeah, the women have been good, but the uh, the guys have yeah had a had a struggle to kind of get back to where they were in the uh, yeah those glory days, early nineties. So next to the goal, there were some spectacular scenes. Uh, one of them uh, been coming across the TV or more than once was this crazy crash from uh, Mathieu van der Poel. Yeah. When you saw this, what what did you think? What were your thoughts when you saw Mathieu van der Poel go down so hard? I think when I was watching it live, I was watching it on the big screen live, and I, I uh, yeah, my first impression was that he just completely set up for it wrong. But it wasn't until I saw the replays, you know, a few days later, really, and, and kind of understood the his his side to to what had happened that yeah, it became apparent that he wasn't aware that. Um, a ramp that's left in the jump for, for training purposes, purely for the first couple of days of training. And it's just there to let the riders uh, feel comfortable getting getting the the jump right. So getting the distance right, getting the landing right. Um, you know, and, and they can do that without fear of without fear of crashing. And I think he yeah, apparently wasn't aware that it was going to be taken out for the race. So um 
obviously there was a lot of a lot of social media about it. He was he, he kind of he he thought it had been taken out without telling anybody. Um, obviously, you know, from from our point of view, uh, you know, it was communicated. It's communicated at the team managers meeting. It's communicated by 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 communicate to all the um, to all the teams to the federations. So yeah, I think you know whether whether he was turned again. You know, we we understand now that the team manager talked to him about it. One of his teammates talked to him about it. Um, whether he just in the heat of you know the heat of competition completely forgot or what happened, I don't know. But yeah, it, what happened happened. It was a real shame because the story going into the games was you know him versus Scherter versus Pidcock. I think is the, the big the big showdown, and it was a shame that very early on. Yeah, we lost one of the big players, so that was a that was a shame. From the outside, I mean, somebody like Mathieu van der Poel, you know, being so present and dominant and professional, that something this can happen to a professional athlete. Hard to believe, oder? To miss out on this information. It is, yeah, it, it is. But it, it, but again, you know, I, I think we're all kind of second guessing what the situation was. He, you know, his. His preparation for it was interesting. You know, he came in a lot later than everybody else. Everybody else had been there for, uh, you know, a number of days before training started to get over the jet lag, get over the travel, um, start to get heat acclimated because it was very hot and humid. And he came in really late. He didn't come in until actually the first day of uh, the first day of training. So, um, yeah, you know, I think. Again, we're, we're kind of second guessing what he was going through there. Right. But you know, whether whether he was still you know, still jet lag, still hadn't had enough time on the course. Everything was a bit of a rush. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just guessing, but uh, yeah, I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think he'll, he'll come out in the media and say, yeah, it was my fault. I kind of, you know, messed up or, but yeah. Well, the, these are the stories that make uh, Olympics and, uh, and exactly. racers, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. yeah. Speaking about the course um, from the distance, it looked crazy spectacular. You know, Good. some people said it, it looked like, you know, uh, a hiking path where you would, some would need a rope. Um, how much were you involved in, in building this and creating this? Well, in, in the building, nothing at all. You know, I don't really get my hands dirty, but um, <laughs> in the, in the design phase. Or design, yeah. Yeah, we've got a really, we've got a really, really good um, course builder, Nick Floros from South Africa. Who was responsible for the uh, the course in in Rio as well five years ago? Um, so he's the hands on guy. Him and his team actually do the building. He's got a very very good understanding of what makes uh, a good race course. He, he understands how a course needs to flow, where riders need to recover, where they need to be able to have passing opportunities, what he can create to make it look spectacular but still be safe. Right. Is he is he then the one also who who chooses the the site, the location, or how does that? No, that's 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 kind of our side. That's UCI side. Okay. Yeah, and then we kind of recommend builders to the organizing committee okay. uh, to to take care of the actual course build. So yeah, Nick Nick Nick's the guy that actually puts you know decides if a rock is going to be, you know, five centimeters to the left or five centimeters right. to the right and kind of creates the lines. And I think his vision is is really what um, what made that course great. But we were lucky that after three Olympics, really, I think from Beijing through London and through Rio, we didn't really have a a venue that had natural 
a natural setting that we could use. Everything had to be man-made, and it, would, it looked quite quite artificial and quite constructed. And I think with with uh, with Tokyo, we we found a, a venue that had got more natural. Uh, yeah, more, more natural stuff to play with. So we got, you know, we got roots, we got trees, we got rocks and and dirt. And you know, the last two Olympics, we pretty much just had grass and nothing else, which which made a big difference. And the the style of the um, of the climbs, it was a very compact venue. We couldn't we couldn't make it stretched out, which meant that the climbs had to be steep. We couldn't make long gradual climbs because then it would have meant more crossings and bridges and tunnels, whatever else you needed. Um, because again, you, you're trying to fit the course into a, into the space you have available, but you also right. need to take into consideration spectators and everything else that needs to be in and around the uh, the venue. So it sounds from your, your telling that the, the, this is one of the, the best courses for the Olympics that has ever been there. I think definitely the best course for an Olympics. And I actually honestly think one of the best courses I've seen for a cross-country mountain bike race, whether it's a World Cup or a championship. or I I, I was talking to um, Thomas Frischnitz about it when we were there, and he asked me the same question. And we actually, I couldn't think of a, of a course that was significantly better than that one. So I think it's it's certainly up there with the best we've ever had. Yeah. If you compare it to all the, the courses you know from, from all the years, which one comes close to this one or was similar? In Europe, I think um, well, I think everybody loves Nova Mesta. I think as a, as a World Cup course, that one's really popular. Right. Um, so that's the kind of the benchmark that you know we're trying to we're trying to achieve. Um, but again, the 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 venue in Nova Mesta is the, the climbs are not quite as steep as the climbs or the the sort of the venue that we had in right. in, in Tokyo. So again, it's courses change with what's there. You know, even dirt changes, the rocks change, some rocks. Right. If it rains, they're still grippy. Some rocks, if it rains, you know, that's like riding on ice. Yeah, but that, that's definitely what what we saw too, right? Uh, yeah. How was how was your night between men's and and women's racing when all that rain came down? Well, that slept pretty well. That was okay. But I think the the course guys early in the morning, it was pretty evident that it was going to be incredibly slippery for the women's race, and the course team had to yeah had to work really really fast and really hard to. Um, to make some changes uh, to make it rideable. There, there, was a, there were a couple of downhills going into a, uh, a bridge and into a climb that were just, you couldn't stand up on it. Yeah. It was incredible how slippery it became. And we hadn't really experienced that because it, we, we hadn't been there in that, in that um, periods of heavy rain, which we had there. So the rest of the course actually soaked up the rain pretty well. It was so dusty after the training days because it hadn't rained for a, a week or so that, um, yeah, the actual rain was good for some parts of the course. Uh, and we just closed a couple of A-lines where the rocks were uh, – the landing off jumps onto rocks was, was a little bit too slippery, so we just chose to uh, – <laughs> <laughs> Nicely said, a little bit too slippery. A little bit. I mean, too. from watching it, uh, I felt uh, for the girls. I think uh, I know. I, I saw this uh, interview with this uh, German girl after the race, who she was in tears. You know, she said it was the hardest uh, she ever did. Of course, she's very young. Yeah. But uh, from your view, outside view, how much different was racing f uh, between men and women? You know, from from uh, uh, just the, the sheer. Uh, handling the course yeah i think well i think purely just from a bike handling point of view it just made it slippery so i think the guys had 
deep dust and completely dry. And the women had, yeah, kind of some wet mud, some sticky mud. Tires, tire choice was really important. Um, so there's some last minute kind of equipment choices as well for the women. And I think early in the race, it, it, you could, it was definitely evident that some of the women couldn't ride the, the last sections of some of the, the steeper climbs. Um, they were on the limit when it was dry on some of the climbs. I think just that little bit of additional rain right. making the mud, making it slippery, just made a little bit of a difference to them. So, you know, it it, it wasn't any more dangerous necessarily. I don't think the course was particularly, okay. uh, you know, one, one that was criticised for being dangerous. Again, we we closed anything that was that we felt was a risk, uh, but the rest of the the rest of the course, yeah, you know, I think that. All of these riders at this level, they're all used to racing in the rain, right, racing right. in different conditions, and they, they prepare accordingly. Yeah, and so, uh, and again, the, the women now are so technically competent that they're not phased by uh, they're not phased by anything like that right. at all. They, they're fine. So, the, back to the course again. How early do you go out to to venues to to Olympic venues to look at find those courses? When does it start? So it starts when the nation is awarded the Olympics. So um, pretty soon after that, we get the information of the venue that was in the the bid from the city or the country to the to the IOC, the Olympic uh, International Olympic Committee. Um, so in the case of Tokyo, that would have been in uh, 2014, I think. They were appointed. Uh, Yeah, awarded the games. Um, so pretty soon, we took within sort of six or eight months after that, we have a site visit to look at the venue that they've proposed in their bid. In the case of Tokyo, it was actually um, a venue in the harbour of Tokyo City, which was a reclaimed reclaimed bit of land that was turned into a uh, a rubbish. Uh, yeah, yeah, that what you call it. Um, Yeah, just plant, like rubbish plant for, 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 yeah, for, for, for storing rubbish and trash. Um, and it was it was just a, maybe a 40-meter-high hill that had been covered in grass with a few small trees, um, but it was completely unsuitable for a, for a world-class mountain bike event, unfortunately. So, yeah, we, we, we spent a few days looking at that, realized pretty quickly that it wasn't suitable. There were, there were methane pipes coming out of it. It was on the, it was on the approach to Haneda airport, which was the, you know, the, the major airport in, in the city where, so it, there were low flying planes coming over constantly. It was really noisy. It just wasn't suitable. So we spent another little bit of time looking at alternatives in the city because it was the original plan was um, they wanted a venue that was in the city of Tokyo, but everything was completely flat. There's no, there's no elevation change um, really that was available. And it actually turned out that some people at a similar time were doing a site visit to the velodrome in Izu, which is two and a half hours uh, about yeah. outside of Tokyo. And the velodrome is part of the continental Asian continental Uh, confederation headquarters so they've got the velodrome they've got a road circuit they actually had a bmx track um all within a the kind of the confines of the, the velodrome venue um and the guys that were there said hey you know th th there may be some opportunities in the land surrounding that so we went right, to take so. a look and it, yeah it turned out to be to be ideal 
so it's still very critical that experts like you and and, uh, and Nick go and, and riders go and visit and have a checkup. Right? Yeah, so I think the, the, the process is that the, so from the UCI do the first inspection with, with at, at the venue to make sure the venue is suitable. Once that's kind of confirmed and written and, and a, a very rough course design uh, to give just to give an idea generally of that we've got the we've got the space we we can make a course that's long enough we've got adequate start and finish area right. we've got right. room for all the grandstands and all the infrastructure um, then it's up to the the um, the OCOG which is the organising committee to then hire a course builder. Right. Now we 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 make recommendations for that, uh, and then once the course builders um, been signed up, then we work with them to to kind of on the course design a little bit closer. But then it's ultimately it's their responsibility to uh, to get the course built. Great, thank you for those insights. And crazy to think it could have been just at a harbor, right? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, just like in Berlin, right? Like in ninety, ninety, ninety one, whatever. I don't think we'd even got anything like that. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like that yeah. But I mean, honestly, it wouldn't even it wouldn't even have made a good cyclocross course. So that's uh, okay. yeah. Hey, speaking about uh, the course and spectators, uh, surprisingly, to the very strict uh, messages we received over here on on how Japan and Tokyo uh, Olympics would handle Corona, there were quite some spectators uh, outside on the on the course. Uh, how did this work out? Yeah, so the, the the directive on the on the COVID protocol within the Tokyo prefecture was was no spectators, but there were three three sports that were taking place outside of that area, which was the okay. the running marathon, which was in um, Osaka, uh, then the the velodrome and the mountain bike race were in in Izu, which is in a different. Um, area so that we were allowed to have 50 percent of the original spectator numbers so we had six and a half thousand spectators which was which wow. was great because it made it yeah it, it gave it some atmosphere and it it um, certainly made a difference yeah are there are there real fans mountain bike fans in japan or what kind of spectators did did you see there i think we we were just i think well hard to know honestly because they're just <laughs> all they're watching but i think um my feeling is that they were just spectators that wanted to go and see a sports event they weren't necessarily mountain bike fans but they were had the opportunity to to actually go to see a, an event so they 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 made the most of it but i think you know they, they sold the tickets super quickly and i think everybody was happy to happy to be there. i don't think, that, I don't think there's a huge culture of mountain bike racing in japan we don't have a lot of races on the uh yes uh, on the international calendar but obviously we've got representation in in the men and women's race from from Japan as the host nation. So they, they certainly had some, you know, Japanese riders to, to cheer. So since you, you made it in and out uh, and experienced firsthand, how, how hard was this process to get into Tokyo with all the Corona uh, rules? Yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of ticking boxes. You know, it's, we had to have two tests, uh, three days and two days before we left, before we traveled. Uh, and then when we arrived, between getting off the plane and getting to baggage to pick up your bags, that was taking between about three hours and seven hours, depending on the airport you flew into. and the Seven the, hours. Yeah. So that, that was the worst I heard. So people that were flying into Narita Airport, if a couple of planes were coming in at once uh, that were full, mainly, mainly when athletes were arriving, it was taking a long time to, to get out. 
I was quite lucky that I flew to the second airport, which is Haneda. Uh, our flight was the first one that arrived in the day, which was from Frankfurt, and it wasn't super busy. So I think we were we were we got through in just under three hours, which was which was fine, you know. And I think we just had to go through some testing protocols. We had to go through some paperwork and it was just a little bit of a, a process. But again, everybody knew about it before we traveled. So, you know, you were kind of ready for right, it. Right. Did you have a chance to, to, to see anything else uh, besides mountain biking and other events? Yeah, I, I was kind of involved in the BMX racing, the BMX freestyle event. Um, so I saw those, but we weren't allowed to go to anything else. So we were, we were pretty much hotel room or event venue and that was it nothing else you know we couldn't couldn't go out for a coffee couldn't go see any other sports or anything else that was happening so you've been to, to many many uh, olympics so um, looking at these special ones what what were your highlights though if you you know with some time in between now looking back yeah i think um i think just the fact that they were able to 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 host it Okay. In, in the situation that they found themselves in, I think that that took an immense amount of uh, courage, almost. I think because it was such a you know we, we've all gone through eighteen months of very difficult period, and I think the fact that they they persisted and, and organised it, I think it would have been easy to walk away. Um, but I think it, it, it's. It's, I think watching other sports when I came back and I watched a lot of other sports on the television and I think everybody seemed a lot more emotional, whether it was the athletes competing or, or you know, family and friends back at home that were watching. Everybody yeah. seemed to be a higher state of emotion with this Olympics than previous ones. And I think that was just the fact that it was it was just good to have something like that again. And it just gave yeah. the people an opportunity to, yeah, maybe remove themselves from the situation that we found ourselves in and to watch sport. And I think, uh, you know, p people generally engage with the Olympics anyway. And I think it just took it to a, a, a little bit of a, a higher emotional state because it was something that was a little bit more normal. Right. Any any uh, any uh, event that jumps to your mind, you say, wow, that was really spectacular on an emotional level um, that you watched? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the athletics, I, I kind of I got into that quite a lot. I think, you know, okay. Things, you know, situations like the men's high jump, you know, when the two athletes yeah. shared the gold medal, that was great. And, uh, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. I think every, every, everything, every, you know, there's, there's a story behind every, every, every medal that's won yes. in every sport, you know, I sure. think it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's good to, good to see that. But again, I think, you know, the highlight, again, obviously the highlight for me was, was a successful mountain bike event. I think it, it, every, the feedback's been great. Um, Yeah, I think it set a new a set a new standard for Olympic mountain biking, which was what we tried to achieve. Which, yeah, so I think it was a, a success. So everything good and safe for for Paris then? Yeah, Paris is good. Yeah, we were a little bit um, a, a little bit concerned that um, you know that there's quite strict reviews on sports by the IOC. They have a a very yeah a very kind of complicated and in-depth way of evaluating sports and it's it's based around you know the, the the amount of people that watch the event on the television the amount of medals that are available the cost of having that sport at the games and the matrix that they use is is, is quite complicated and that we mountain bikes since Beijing has been on the kind of the knife edge of whether it stays or whether it goes Beijing was a turning point and I think that we in Beijing There was a lot of criticism from the IOC that mountain biking was uh, was too expensive. It needed too many TV cameras. 
OBS, which is the Olympic Broadcasting Service, were were yeah, it was it was a huge budget for them, the most expensive sport to to cover. But at right. the time, you know, mountain bike cross country was at a stage where courses were, you know, between eight and ten kilometers in length. Uh, there was no real kind of concept of making races for television, and I think we quite quickly had to change the style of racing and courses for for cross country to try to keep the sport in the Olympics. And it it might feel that that's the you know changing a sport just to stay in the Olympics might sound quite petty but i think it's important because so many national federations and so many athletes are kind of get help with olympic funding so i think keeping a keeping a sport in the olympics makes a huge difference to to national federations for them to be able to then um give funding to to athletes to be able to train full time compete so the olympics is a, is a big deal for 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 a lot of sports and i think we 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 really need to to, to make sure it kept it in for london and and for rio so we made the changes, you know, obviously courses got a lot shorter, more compact. We tried to encourage the television to use less cameras. Didn't really work too well, but, um, you know, we're still got a situation less where... Less cameras? Like how, how less? I mean... Well, we've got a situation where we can have a, a mountain bike World Cup that Red Bull right. uh, produce with around 20 cameras. Um, at the Olympics, they use pretty much twice that, 38 to 40 cameras. Wow. But... They don't necessarily get twice the <laughs> twice the production value. You know, I think we still see, you know, with the experience of Red Bull, we still see great production with with a twenty camera um, right. production. We're not really seeing a, a significant increase in 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 the sports, uh, you know, production with having twice that. But the the, the, the extra cost is huge. But it's just the way that um, just the way that the Olympic Channel, they it's the way they work. They're they're very they're very scared of of missing any any sections of the course. They don't want to have something happen out of camera out of camera sight. So cameras tend to be uh, continuous. So there's you know no meters of the course are missing. But again, you know they'll still have, uh, for example, in in, in Tokyo they had a huge uh, zip line camera that went across the whole venue to give a, you know, a big panoramic shot, but they also had a helicopter flying around for, for an hour and a half. So, you know, things like that are quite hard for, for me to, to kind of reconcile a little bit. I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking saying we're, we're honestly, you know, you're spending whatever 5,000 euros a minute for a, for a helicopter. And do you really need to do that? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one to justify. Watching the race definitely came across a little irritating to have uh, the sound of a helicopter in the mountain bike race. Yeah, and I think you know technology's moved on to the point where the last couple of World Cups, Red Bull have used a drone for for some really interesting footage, which is you know it's incredibly cheap. It's a you know it's whatever right. a couple of thousand euros for a good drone, and uh, it's completely silent and it's very very maneuverable, and they can they can do some really interesting things with it. So again, I think it's just you know they. So it sounds that uh, there's not too much uh, communication between Red Bull and, and the, the Olympics in terms of uh, how to produce. Uh... Well, no, zero. I think we, we, we kind of actually invited the one of the producers from the Olympic channel to watch, to come to a World Cup two right. or three years ago to kind of see how, how Red Bull did it. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's just their way of working. It's just like this big machine um, and... Yeah, but again, it, it, the the problem that we have is that it reflects a little bit on the sport, so it's still right. perceived as being an expensive sport for 
for the, for the Olympics to to have in the games, which you know we just try to convince them constantly that it's not that expensive. We can do it cheaper. You can make it uh, interesting. Okay. You know, more financial. Oh, thanks, thanks for those insights. I mean, uh, from the outside, it's hard to see, but uh, definitely comparing the the World Cup races uh, following online to to Olympics, uh, you can see a difference. Yeah, and I think you know things like venues. You know, there's there's um, where multiple sports can use one venue. Then the IOC will then divide the cost by the the, the number of medals that are available for all these different sports. The mountain bike venue only has one one set of medals. So again, we, we tried really hard to add short track to the um, to the Olympic program in Paris, but but unfortunately that, that wasn't successful. But again, just purely by having another event with another set of medals, right. use, using the same athletes, we would have halved the, the the kind of the estimated cost because we could have had two events for the price of one. Um, so again, wow. it's those those kind of things that come into the matrix of how the IOC. Um, evaluate a sport which is yeah and speaking of athletes so how many total uh athletes participated then at the mtb 38 men 38 women whoa that's yeah. compared to like how many in the world cup core 100 and yeah between 100 and 120 men and ah, 90 or 100 women wow. generally yeah okay for a european event that's uh definitely a lot of uh math and, and matrix going on there right Definitely, yeah, and I think they got you know the Olympics has this kind of maximum athlete number which they can't go over, which they're just not prepared to go over. So if if new sports are added, then they have to kind of take those athlete places from other sports. So cycling is is ring fenced as far as the total number of cyclists, but those cyclists go across, yeah. you know, road, track, mountain bike, BMX. So the addition of BMX freestyle those athlete numbers for BMX freestyle had to come from within cycling. So they took, they took, you know, four from mountain bike. They took some from okay. track. They took some from, from road. And then the other thing that's made a big difference is the, um, the, the equality between men and women's numbers. So you can probably remember, but you know, from Atlanta through to, through to Beijing, the, um, it was 60, 60 men and 40 women. Uh, but then that got, Wow. Equaled, equalized to um yeah unfortunately again we lost we lost some numbers when we did that equality change and we we, we tried to go 60 60 but we ended up with 40 40 because then the 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 ones that we lost went to bmx racing when that was in, introduced uh, and then we had to reduce it from 40 to 38 per race to give four places to uh, bmx freestyle so how do you imagine this? You all guys sit around a table and it's kind of like a poker game a little bit, like, you know, you give up this and how do... Pretty much, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, not far wow. off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for all these insights. It's uh, very interesting and never, unless you're here or read it, it's it's uh, hard to understand from the outside. Um, what what athletes did impress you in, in, in Tokyo or what where were you surprised? Um. I wasn't surprised by Pitcock because he's, the, the guy's a, an incredible athlete. You know, I think whatever he turns his hand to, he's, he's on a bike. He's, he's been successful at it. Um, I think the the one, two, three for the Swiss women was right. uh, was really impressive. I think I think that showed that 
the Swiss are very, very good at preparing for for the big event. You see them, you see them working as a team with their with their national coaches, with their team staff. They do a lot of things as, as a national team. They'll have training camps, you know, during the season, uh, get all the all the riders together from their various you know professional teams and, and give them training camps. Right. And I think the yeah, I think that showed that they got it spot on. They got everything right for that day. I, I don't think anybody would have put um Cena Fry and Linda Indergang in kind of you know in medal positions you on an exceptional day maybe one of them but I think to get to get those two behind Yolanda Neff you know I think Yolanda was um certainly one of the favorites to get a medal right uh, so that wasn't so much of a surprise but I think their second and third definitely were and I think the other one was um the Hungarian uh okay yeah the Blanca Vass you know I think she's been a she's been uh still young right yeah very young obviously come up through cyclocross um been successful at that you know world championship medalists and and you know won world cups um and the same under 23 on the mountain bike she's you know she's been she's been very good but i think to again to step up in, at the olympics your first olympics is always a little bit oh, yeah. different because it's such a it's such a different event such a different environment to be in uh and again from a a small nation. So I think her, her support from her kind of Olympic Federation maybe wouldn't have been as strong as someone like the Swiss, you know, with the, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of money and a lot of options behind the Swiss team to kind of help them prepare. And I don't think that would necessarily be available from the Hungarian right. Federation. So again, I think for her, that was a, so, that was a great race. So interesting, like, you know, yeah, from the outside, you look at MTB racing, you know, mountain bike racing, it's a, it looks like an individual sport, you know, not like road racing where you draft and you have teams. Uh, but then you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the success of the Swiss was definitely a team, team success to bring these girls, uh, all up there with your great experience looking at this, like what, what other countries do a good job in, in bringing these individual athletes together as a team? The, the Swiss, the French. The Germans, the Brits, okay, um, Austria a little bit. You see them kind of quite often. Um, it, it's it's main, mainly the kind of the um, the kind of the, the bigger cycling nations within Europe, yeah. And I think you can you can certainly see as well when when um, nations don't necessarily get it right. You know, it's more a group of individuals rather than a than a team working right. working together. Uh, you know, I think if you probably took the USA as an example of that, I think it's quite hard because it's such a such a big country. Right. I think it's quite hard for them to coordinate in a way that the Swiss would, because you know Switzerland it's a small it's yeah as as a as a landmass it's quite small. You know, it's, it's quite easy to drive from one side to the other to meet up to go for a you know a training weekend or whatever. In the US, it's a little bit different to that. So I think, you know, you see a US team and it's a little bit more, um, yeah, a group of individuals. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm from the outside looking in, but it kind of comes. Yeah, in. It's, it's, it's interesting observation, you know, the, the, the geographics of the country and the, and the number of people, uh, make a difference in, in getting together as a team, you know, as you said, just let's go come together. Yeah. And again, for kind of, you know, for athletes from countries like that, like the US, they spend so much of their time traveling to races as well, because right. a lot of the races are in Europe or in, you know, other, other, other continents. It's, 
you know, probably when they're home, they actually don't want to get on a plane again just to go for a training camp for, you know, four or five days. It's it's a lot different from a somebody in Central Europe that can maybe, you know, drive home from a World Cup race on a Sunday evening, be in their own bed, have a couple of days recovery, and then do do a training camp, you know, with a national right. team a few days later. It's a lot different, uh, different culture and a lot different... Uh, Especially considering in the US, you know, you have to pack everything for a plane, which just makes it... 10 times more yeah. painful than just throwing stuff in the car. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, very interesting. And, and uh, uh, so to see, so you could almost say like the smaller countries have a better chance to become a better team. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Well, yeah, certainly. I, but I think you still need the, you still need somebody that's some expertise in the country right. and some kind of, you know, passion to, to go after a goal. Um, and I think some of these smaller countries, they've certainly got the the ability to hire the right people and to um, you know create an environment that's 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 led by performance. And I think that's a you know I think you know you, you you've kind of seen it. Well, I've seen it certainly with the British team over the last three Olympic sort of cycles. I think from when when British cycling started to get funding from the the national lottery. Right. It suddenly made this huge difference to to be able to, you know, athletes could train full time. They didn't have to go and do part time work. We could hire coaches. Uh, we could start to sort of develop systems to, you know, to have pathways in place from, you know, little kids it, playing around on bikes at schools right through to, you know, elite yeah. Olympic um, competition. And I think that showed it took a couple of Olympic cycles to get into the swing of that. But now, you know, the, the kind of the Brits have been. You know, almost the, the nation to beat as far as track cycling. That that's that's then had a knock-on effect to road cycling. Uh, you know, they've won the Tour de France, whatever. You know, right. And and that that's uh, amazing to see how progressive the Brits are in like having these how you call them centers. Like you know, like there's a center for athletic and for for cycling and putting all this know-how as you said together. Yeah. And and then you you have uh, close range right to to find the expert to help you in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's really uh, also a great uh, development. Also, a nice one is having like heroes. Like, you know, I saw a nice post from uh, from uh, Tom Pitcock uh, when when Mark Cavendish won the green jersey. Right, that you're know, having these heroes, um, and I think that's uh, you know, as the UK, same you could think of like the the Brits, the the French, like you know, Absalon, Frischi. Exactly. Yeah, uh, to have these uh, generations of uh, great athletes. Yeah, that yeah. these young people can look up to. Right. Exactly, and I think that's that's what's happened. You know, imagine now you're a you're a Swiss girl that wants to get into cycling, and you've got those kind of three three role models to uh, you know to follow. It's a great, you know, yeah, absolutely. No, you, you're completely right, and I think one thing that's always completely amazed me about British downhill racing is the fact that the Brits are so good at downhill when we don't have any mountains and we don't have any uplifts. You know, there's, there's right. not one gondola. Well, there's one gondola in the whole of the Great Britain, which is at Fort William. Um, but and that, I'm, I'm convinced that that's just purely because early on in, in the kind of mountain bike history, we had, you know, Jason McCroy and then we had Steve Pete and Rob Warner. And these guys just kind of, everybody wanted to emulate them. And, right. you know, and it's never changed. You know, we just had these generations of, of British downhillers when it makes no sense. But I can't name a, you know, I can't name a Swiss downhiller. And you think all the Swiss ski areas, all the Swiss mountains, right. 
there's so many opportunities and there's no good Swiss downhillers. And it's, it's yeah, I, I, you're completely right. I think heroes are a, a really big part of uh, what motivate people or what encourage people to, to take up a sport. So who were your heroes, you know, when you were racing? Did you have heroes? Yeah, I had a guy called uh, Roland Liberton, who was a Belgian cyclocross rider. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how did he make it to your hero top list? Well, he was he was five times professional world champion, which helped. But I thought okay. he was the most stylish guy on a bike I'd ever seen on a cyclocross bike. And I just tried to, yeah, I was I, I was kind of whatever, a little bit uh, of a different shape to him. But I just tried to kind of, yeah. Base my riding style on kind of, yeah, you know, I tried to carry my bike the same way as him. I tried to ride my bike the same as him. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, those who don't know you and, and, uh, and the, this Belgian, uh, hero of yours, like, you know, what, what is the difference in size or, or shape when you say like you're a tall guy, right? Like one, yeah, I'm, a tall, I'm, yeah, I'm like one, 195 or something. I guess he would be one, I don't know, 175. I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> That's a big, everybody, everybody looks small to me. So I don't know what he would be. But it, it's it's interesting that uh, um, you know you you've done it all your life, and I had uh, the the privilege every once in a while to to go to see these high end athletes and work with coaches. That how much this uh, observing uh, is a huge matter. Like he goes there, and, you, and like you said, I wanted to run like him. I want to carry my bike like him. Uh, just watching it. Um, what what do you see there in 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 from your experience that that coaching has developed the sport. Our coaching's just, it, it's night and day compared to, you know, when I was, when I was racing or even in my early days of, of, of team managing and coaching, you know, there's so much more information available now. Everything's by, by the, well, there's so much information available by numbers, whether it's, right. whether it's, you know, power, power meters or GPS data, or, you know, everybody's got, a screen on the bike, you know, they've got, they've got Garmin's and Wahoo's and, and right. whatever else, you know, and it's, and there's, there's so much information. And I think that's given, that's given coaches um, so much to work with. But I, what I think what I find interesting in off-road compared to say road or track, right. road or track, especially track, if you ride at a certain power, uh, at a certain number of revs per minute, in a certain temperature of velodrome, you can, you, you can, you can kind of pinpoint your time for a, a 4,000 meter pursuit to within, you know, a 10th of a second. Right. Um, there's some technique involved obviously, but it's more about kind of the numbers that you generate and, and you kind of, you know, even aerodynamics is, is based on numbers. Off-road is completely different to that. You still need to build the engine, you know, build the bike rider, um, but there's so much more involved in racing off-road. You know, there's, 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 there's weather conditions, there's technique, there's technical ability. There's, there's so much more. It's not just about, you know, being, you can be the fittest guy in the race and you can finish 20th because, you know, you don't, you can't cope with conditions when it starts to rain or you're not very right. good at a certain, you know, a certain technique, you can't climb very, very steep things because you can't get your body position right, whatever it might be. It's, um, there's so much more involved in it. And I think that's, that's, I think why I've, you know, kind of always stayed in off-road racing because I think there's so much more to it. And it's so much more interesting than, uh, than just being a pure, uh, physical 
right. ability to get from A to B the fastest. And then, you know, just that the soccer season starts again, you know, there's a big discussions again about like uh, special trainers, like coaches for tactic for, you know, like all the, the, the goalies. Yeah. Like, uh, basically they have like next to the head coach, uh, it feels like a full hand of uh, specialties. Is mm -hmm. that something you see as well in, uh, in, uh, in mountain biking? It's funny you mentioned that actually. I was watching the climbing in the Olympics. Okay. And there was a, there was a, a pro, an article about a, the British woman climber, and I can't remember her name, but she was saying that she has a, a finger conditioning coach and she has a separate guy who's her forearm conditioning coach. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I think there's the, 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 the speciality of, of, of what you're trying to achieve and finding the right person to, to work with each part of it is, is uh, it's becoming, yeah, it's becoming crazy now, you know? Um, I think what we see with mountain bikes, certainly in the last, um, the last few years is technical coaches, even, even Tom Pidcock with his, you know, kind of proven technical ability on a bike. He had a technical coach with him in Tokyo that was riding on the course with him, was pointing out, you know, pointing out options, try this, try that. Okay. Let's just do that one again. Let's time this section. Video analysis, uh, is a really big part of it, you know, like, watching videoing obviously your athlete but also videoing videoing other people to sort of you know mm -hmm. compare what, what can you learn from from somebody else you know things like i don't know if it's still the most current i certainly used to use dartfish software where you could video a couple of different people on downhill sections and kind of superimpose them and see which you know if if speed coming into a section was translated into exit speed and these kind of uh, these kind of techniques so, you know, there's an awful lot that's changed. It's not just a case of being... These coaches, uh, do you see them like being, uh, having been really great athletes when, when they were young or are, are they, do you see new people who come from complete different uh, disciplines? I think in mountain bike, most of the people I've seen, the technical coaches have been from, actually been from downhill. Okay. So, you know, for example, Oscar Saints is doing, he was with the Swiss Obviously, mm. Spanish working for the Swiss, and he was he was on the course with the Swiss women, kind of you know helping them with their technical sections. Um, yeah, a lot of um, Sholmes March is working with uh, with the the American team. I don't know if you remember Sholmes when he was a US downhiller, kind of late nineties, I guess, early two thousands. So you know, I think a lot of a lot of the technical right now, the technical coaching is coming from the gravity side of the sport. That's a nice move from the Swiss uh, team to have a nice, handsome Spanish downhill trainer for the girls. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another point of motivation yeah. to go for another loop. Hey, so we talked uh, so intensively about uh, Olympics and thanks for really all these great insights. Um, you're about to head to, I think when we talked in the pre talk to your 30th uh, mountain bike world championships. Or 31. Thirty-two. This will be thirty-two. Okay, thirty-two. Thirty yeah. plus the thirty plus. <laughs> There you go. Uh, you, you've been to all these events. You've you've been to 90% of all the World Cups. How are you? Like, how do you feel today? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you've seen so much. You've, you've you know these people. You travel the world, but like, how do you? How does Simon feel today about his job and 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 what what happened? Yeah, I'm 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 still as passionate about it as I ever was. I think it's. Again, I think it's a sport that's changed and evolved, and I think it needs to keep changing and evolving. And I, you know, 
when I occasionally read, um, you know, whatever social media posts from people that say, oh, you know, racing was better in the nineties. Well, you know, the nineties was great, but you know, the, the, the the 2020s is great as well. And I've never, I've never felt the need to kind of go back and say that something was better than, than it is now. And I think the sports evolved. Um, I love the, I love the change in, in technology with, with bikes and equipment. I, I think that's a great, a great part of the sport. And I think, you know, we've, we've tried really hard not to have regulations for bikes in mountain right. biking. It's always been the kind of the, the melting pot of, of product development, um, whether that's, you know, Shimano doing, you know, whatever kind of derailleurs and shifting on mountain bikes before they took it to the road, um, you know, whether it's suspension, whether it's, you know, frame development, whatever it might be. Was there, was there a time where there was danger that there was uh, regulations? I don't think so. But I think, you know, the, the UCI certainly is, is kind of seen as, you know, quite a strict regimented organization, you know, that there's such strict rules for road equipment, uh, whether right. it's time, time trial bikes and, you know, you can't sit in a certain position and you can't have, you know, so many centimeters behind the bottom bracket at the front of the saddle and all these kind of things. It's like, yeah, we don't want that for mountain biking. You know, it's, it's, that's not the way it is. And I think, um, you know, the, the sports change, I think, The other thing that's changed within mountain bike sport is the number of little offshoots that have become popular. So, you know, obviously mountain bike cross country um, and downhill have kind of been fairly, fairly stable throughout the kind of those 30 years. But then you've had, you know, dual slalom, there's been four cross, there's been cross country eliminator, there's enduro now, which is really great. You've got, You've had marathon racing, which has kind of dipped and right. dipped and peaked a little bit, but now marathon racing is is is, is now on a you know really really popular. Um, so there's all these little you know 24 hour racing that was a big thing a few years ago. So you know there's there's lots of kind of offshoots to it, and I think that's really really keeps it fresh and and, and exciting. Um, Yeah. 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 I think, you know, ask me how I'm doing. I'm doing, I'm doing fine. I still love, you know, at the end of the season, it's still nice to not get on a plane and to have some downtime. But with honestly, within a couple of weeks, I'm like, want to go to a race again and want to quite happy to travel. You've been now with the UCI for a while and, and you've been, you know, last, the last two years with Corona, like everybody else been going through, uh, yeah, crazy day by day planning changes, planning changes. How how did this uh, work out for you and your work, this pandemic? Yeah, it was difficult. I think we you kind of think with no racing that there won't be much work to do, but it was it was incredibly busy. But from a, a totally different point of view, we were just trying to keep trying to help organisers keep events going and keep them on the calendar. Last year, we tried so hard to make sure we had a world championships um, right. and to have something normal in the season, and you know we ended up with with the two cross country races in Novi Mesto, the world championships, and then four rounds of the downhill world cup. Um, but that felt like a victory because, you know, it was coming from two or three months before you were thinking, yeah, we're not going to get anything at all here. And it was, it was, yeah. So last year was, it was tough. And again, you know, working from home, you don't sort of see anybody not going to races. I mean, you know, it's similar with you, I'm sure, you know, you travel so much that suddenly, 
I've been sitting on planes going to races for years and years, and suddenly to have a year when I, I did one, you know, whatever, one flight, and that was, and that was actually to Tokyo before the pandemic. Um, you know, it was that was that was pretty hard. Just kind of bit, felt like being under house arrest, but you know. <laughs> so were you able to make some some good good uh, use of the time not on planes? Not really, honestly. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, probably probably not very productive. But I mean, I tried to you know I tried to get out of the house and you know whatever, ride a little bit and walk a bit and get some fresh air. But uh, yeah, not I didn't you know I didn't start any new hobbies or. Uh, do anything super exciting no so what what bike do you choose these days if you go for for a spin or for a sweat uh well i've always i've i've never actually ridden mountain bikes oh come on no it's no i've always felt like it's been easier just to jump on a road bike and go for a road ride for an hour or two I, or you know a cyclocross bike and ride off road but i've never really been uh yeah i've never never really had i've had a couple of mountain bikes but i've never really had you know the opportunity to uh, or bit, lived in, a, in lived in areas where it was easy just to jump on a mountain bike and go for a ride so i've just always ridden on the road or you know now i kind of i've got a, a gravel bike um so just kind of yeah jump on that go out for a bit so uh, you, you've never really uh, then enjoyed riding with uh, with those great athletes after a race weekend doing some crazy stuff with like frishy or tomek or Rent. Never ridden with any of them. No, not at all. Wow. No, never have a bike at an event. So uh, that's kind of limits that one. Traveling with a bike when you're in doing what I'm doing is, is not the easiest. So yeah, uh, yeah. no, no ride with them. Interesting. Yeah. So looking forward to to, to next week's uh, or in a couple of weeks, the, the, the World Championships in Val di Sole. What, uh, what are you yep. looking forward to there? Um. I'm actually looking forward to it. It's going to be the first short track world championships. Okay. Yeah. Which I've, I've, I've been really happy with how that's been received and how that that's kind of taken off. Um, certainly on the Red Bull coverage, it's been really popular. Yes. It's been a great addition to the, to the, to the weekend of, of racing at a world cup. So I'm excited to see that. Um, Yeah, I've heard a rumor that I haven't looked at the entry list actually recently, but I've, I've heard a rumor that Van der Poel's going to race. I was going to ask, is, is he yeah. so suits him pretty pretty well, right? Yeah, yeah. Pidcock's not racing because he's doing the Vuelta in Spain. Um, okay. But I think if if um, if Van der Poel, I'm sure he's got more motivation after missing out <laughs> on the Olympics to uh, to take a rainbow jersey. You're going to bring a little ramp for him. Just like a miniature one, like yeah, I better not. I better leave that. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, like uh, coming back to to the, those two guys, um, and you've been uh, from day one cyclocross, seeing like the the new generations of uh, Pitcocks and Thunderpools, uh, or this this young girl that you mentioned from Hungary, like coming from cyclocross uh, and then jumping all over the disciplines. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? You know, that's that's new right yes well it is quite new yeah i think you know traditionally cyclocross riders always used to do a bit of road racing right but no one's and i think you know people like frischnecht obviously he's the you know the kind of the the guy henrik journeys the guys in the 90s were always doing cyclocross and mountain bike um but i think it became a little bit more difficult to do both competitively so i think Each would do the other for training or just to do something a little bit different in the off season. But I think 
and I think it goes back a little bit to now how coaching has evolved to a point okay. where it's it's easier to um, to plan a twelve month season and to give riders peaks, uh, you know, goals to achieve, and then be able to measure recovery a little bit better um, to make sure that you know you, you you're not competing 12 months a year at a really right. a really high level and kind of you know risking the burnouts and the the kind of the whether it's mental fatigue or physical fatigue i think that's that's really important so i think i think coaching has evolved to a point where that's that's more more possible now and, and thanks to the data you mean like what we talked before so having yeah, more exactly. data and yeah 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 i think you can just okay. look at you can look at you know you can go for a ride come back look at the numbers within 30 minutes of being back And know that you know what you need to do the next day because you're okay. I'm obviously I'm obviously tired. I don't actually feel it, but the numbers are suggesting that I am. So you can kind of yeah make make changes accordingly. And I think you can do that on a bigger scale as well. So I think right. a lot more phased planning throughout a year is 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 normal now, which you know 20 years ago it probably wasn't. Um, and I think we're just at a level where there's a generation of kids that don't necessarily think that they're pigeonholed into being one type of cyclist. And I think they enjoy doing everything. You know, if you, you talk to Pidcock, he just loves playing around on his bike off road. And, you know, he's gone to the, he's obviously he's a talented road rider and he'll make his, he'll make his millions racing on the road. He won't make that off road, but you know, he's even winning the, winning the Olympics. He still wants to show up in Paris and he still wants to, you know, he wants to do a downhill world cup. That's yeah. I, I read that. that That's the kind of kid he is. And I think, you know, the same with the same with Van der Poel. Everybody kind of wants to push him into, you know, go win the Tour de France. But he wants to, yeah, he still likes cyclocross and he still loves racing on his mountain bike. And I think why they, why they can do the three and why they've got teams that are prepared to support them to do that, then right. I think it's only going to encourage the next the next generation to, to follow along. I think there's a... Um, Heinrich Hausler, the the, the, yeah. the road rider, you know, he got into cyclocross and he's like, this is the best thing ever. I, can't, I wish I'd done this, you know, 20 years ago when I was a kid because it would have made me a better road rider, but it's also a lot of fun. Um, so I think you know, we'll see more more crossover between between disciplines. More open minds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Simon, thank you so much. What a great uh, time talking to you and all these insights, especially from the Olympics, but also your personal view with all this experience. I wish you great, great uh, 32nd World Championships. <laughs> thank you. You know, and uh, yeah, looking forward when there's, uh, it's easier to travel again to see you at some of the races next year at the World Cups. Yeah, I hope so, Dirk. You're welcome anytime. Yeah. Th thank you again and stay safe. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.